In the late 1800s, uh, there was a gap that was not bridged between uh, New York and Brooklyn. And they weren't a part, they weren't even, Brooklyn wasn't actually one of the boroughs at New York at that time. It was kind of its own thing. Brooklyn was on one side of the East River and New York was on the other side of the East River. And the only way to get back and forth were a bunch of ferries that were taking people back and forth. Hundreds of trips a day taking people from Brooklyn to New York or what we call Manhattan to, uh, to get and take people there and to work. Uh, one gentleman, Washington Roebling, thought that there could be something else that could be done about this, and he had the dream and the vision to build a bridge, what we know as the Brooklyn Bridge. The problem is, in the late 1800s, nothing like the Brooklyn Bridge had ever been built. Those suspension bridges had been built, but nothing to that scale before. Nothing had been built that long and with that large of a span between supporting pillars like anything like the Brooklyn Bridge had been as he had been envisioning it. Suspension bridges were being built around the world but actually many of them were not lasting very long and some of them were falling down for lack of engineering and, and various reasons and unexpected um, unanticipated aspects of just the nature of a suspension bridge. But Roebling had this dream and this idea that there could be a bridge between Brooklyn and New York. And he had to convince uh, many people to do this and to trust him. And he built many other small bridges around the country and brought people around to show them that they would trust that he could do this. And this is all chronicled in David McClellan's book, The Great Bridge. And he eventually starts building it. And in 1872, uh, the building is going on. And the two towers, and if you can picture the Brooklyn Bridge in your mind, it has two large towers with kind of gothic arches that go through them where the traffic drives through them. And as I said, nothing like this had been built in the, prior to this time. Now since then, of course, the Golden Gate Bridge, the Manhattan Bridge, they're bigger and longer, but at that time there had been nothing like this. In fact, those towers would have been the tallest structures in New York at that time that he was proposing to build. And in June of 1872, as the building was going on, the tower on the Brooklyn side stood 100 feet above the high tide mark. But the tower on the New York side looked like nothing because it stood 78 feet 6 inches below the high tide mark. And the engineer at the time knew that the public was uh, getting restless and kind of wondering what's going on and is this thing going to get done and what's happening with the New York side. Maybe this bridge is never going to get built. And so the head engineer put out this uh, release at the time in June of 1872. He said, to such of the general public as might imagine that no work had been done on the New York Tower because they see no evidence of it above the water, I should simply remark that the amount of the masonry and concrete laid on that foundation during the past winter underwater is equal in quantity to the entire masonry of the Brooklyn Tower visible today above the water line. 
And so they had to build way below the waterline on the New York side and they had to invest a lot of concrete and a lot of masonry below the waterline. And so you can look and you see one tower that's 100 feet above and you, it looks like nothing is happening but 78 feet below the waterline. There was much work that was happening and being built. And it's like that with bridges, but it's like that in life. That often some of the most important work that's being done is being done below the waterline. Is being done in the places where nobody sees, in the obscure places, in the places where people don't notice it, and yet it's important and it's critical work. I love what Pastor Tony Evans says. He says, many Christians want skyscraper faith on a chicken coop foundation. And it's true, we don't want to build the foundation, we don't want to do the hard work of going down deep, but we want the skyscraper faith, we want the skyscraper. But you can't have the skyscraper without having the foundation that often nobody sees. And that's what we're talking about in this series of how God prepares people. The truth is that many times God will prepare people through the obscure, in the obscure places and through the mundane of life that you and I might see and not think is very important and yet the hand of God is at work in your life. And we saw it with David and we saw it with Joseph and it's true being out in the shepherd's field or being in a prison where nobody sees you and yet God is at work and God sees you and you and I in the mundane places in life and the obscure places that no one sees, I believe God is at work in your life. And I'm talking this morning primarily to people who follow Jesus. And if you're here and you're still thinking about following Jesus and wondering about putting your trust in him, I'm glad you're here. This is a great place for you to be. And you can hear a little bit. We're going to pull back the curtain and lift up the hood a little of what it is to follow Jesus. But if you are a follower of Jesus, the truth is that some of the, much of the important work God's doing to create in you and make you into the follower of God is happening in the mundane, obscure places in life. Author Jeff Mannion in his book Dream Big, Think Small puts it this way, a remarkable life is built by taking a thousand unremarkable steps. And it's true. You know, we see people and we see lives, we say, wow, isn't that great what they did? Isn't that credible what they did? But all you see and all I see is the one step that everybody saw. But what you don't see is the thousand unremarkable steps that they took leading up to that moment. And the truth is, God prepares a life often in the obscure places and in the mundane things of life where you are learning to trust Him and you are learning to walk with Him and God is preparing you for what He has coming down the road. And so I want to talk with you about that this morning and about continuing this discussion of how God prepares people. And as we get into that this morning, I also want to give you this idea that I think in life, many times, we confuse start lines with finish lines. In life, we at times, I think, come to something that we think is a finish line, but it's actually a giant start line. It happens, many of you, uh, maybe it happened to you when you graduated from school, whether you, you know, graduated from high school, graduated from college, you came to a finish or something, and you thought, I'm finally done, I've reached, it's a finish line, and what you found out is all it was was a giant start line. Or it happens, some of you, maybe if you're married, if you've been married longer than a day, you know this. You know that a wedding 
is a start line and not a finish line. But the problem is, many people around you that day will be giving you the message that this is a finish line. The florist will give you, this is the finish line. We just got to get to this day. You know, the, the people, know the videographer, we just got to get through this day. You know, we're going to do, your parents, oh, we just got to get through this day. And then it's, you know, we, we get to the finish line, cross this line. Your bank account is telling you it's a finish line. Just get to this day. But it's not, it's a start line. Every couple I sit down with to uh, talk about uh, doing their wedding, I say, the truth is, I don't really care that much about your wedding. And that may be a shock at first, but it's true. The truth is, I hope you have a wonderful wedding and it's all that you ever dreamed it would be, but I care much more about the marriage. And let's talk about all the days that are going to come after this one day. Because if those days aren't good, then this one day was all in vain. It's not, the, it's not the wedding day, it's the marriage that's important. See, it's not a finish line, it's a start line. It's like that way with parents, with kids. If you've got kids, maybe you get them to serious, you know, milestones and you think, oh, we've done it. They walk, finish line. They're potty trained. This is still an amazement to me. Every time my kids go to themselves and I'm like, oh, that's, oh, God, thank you. <laughs> thought we'd never get to that day. I shouldn't say that when I have teenagers. Don't tell them I said that. Uh, but I'm serious. It's like you get to that and you're like, oh, we're done. And you're not done. This next thing that's coming. But here's the thing. We mistake, we mistake start lines for finish lines. And here's the danger in it. When we do that, the danger is we become very frustrated. Because when you think a start line is a finish line, you're going to be very frustrated when you've got to keep running afterwards. Imagine, you know, in April, you're getting out to start the Boston Marathon, and, someone, and you cross the line in Hopkinton thinking that's the finish line. You know, you begin very frustrated thinking you've got 26.2 miles to go. So if somebody tells you something is a finish line when it's really a start line, you might end up being really frustrated when you realize how much work there is left to go. And it happens this way, I think, in our spiritual life too. It can happen in our walk with God. In our walk with God, at times, we can make finish lines out of things that are actually start lines. And maybe we give people the message that something is a finish line when it's really just a start line. And I think this comes when we talk about coming to Jesus. Because coming to Jesus and giving your life to Jesus is a huge, important moment. And for some people, much of their life had been leading up to that moment. Maybe you came to Jesus later in life and someone was sharing Jesus with you and they were praying for you and they were telling, you know, you need to come to the Lord. God loves you. You need to come to God. And you thought about it and you knew they were praying. You came to church and you sat and you really didn't believe, but you listened and you had questions and you asked and you searched it out. And finally, one day you said, you know what, God, I believe I'm coming. I'm putting my life in your hands. And because so much went into that day, you can think, that's a finish line. But here's the thing. It's a start line. It's not a finish line. It's a start line. But sometimes you come to Jesus and you think, well, now I've done that. And someone gives you the impression that now all you have to do is sit around and wait till you die and see him face to face. But there's got to be more than that, right? There's got to be more than that. 
And there is more than that. And I want to talk to you about that for a few minutes this morning. I want to talk to you about a man named Saul. <clears throat> Saul lived in the first century just after the time of Jesus. And I want to talk to you about him because I think Saul is a person we come to and we look at one particular instance in Saul's life and we think finish line. And if we look a little closer at Saul's life, what we'll realize is what looked like a finish line was really a start line. Saul has one of the most famous conversion experiences to Jesus of anyone in history. In fact, maybe you've heard the term Damascus Road experience. Uh, maybe you have, maybe you have. If you've been in church, you might have heard the term Damascus Road experience. You think, well, that means radical conversion. Well, it actually comes from Saul's life. He was actually literally on a road going to the city of Damascus. He had a, the Damascus Road experience. And it's in Acts chapter 9, and I want to read a little bit of it for you. Here's who Saul was, though. Saul was a seriously religious man following the Jewish faith, pursuing it. And he pursued it to the point and with such tenacity that if anyone ever challenged it, he would go after them and try and shut down whatever movement they were trying to start. Saul was a part of someone, something called the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were the religious of the religious group. The Pharisees put rules around rules. Let me, let me give you an example. So God says, uh, rest one day in seven. Now one of the Ten Commandments is keep the Sabbath. That you shouldn't work seven, you should rest one day in seven and give that to the Lord in worship. The Pharisees would say, okay, rest one day in seven, we have to put some rules around what rest and work means. So they would come up with a number and say, this is the number of steps you can walk on the Sabbath day. And if you walk one more step than this, then you are violating the Sabbath. You've worked. Or they had rules like you can carry this amount of weight in your pockets, but if you carry any more weight than that, you've broken the rule and you violated the Sabbath. You're doing work. They were so careful. They wanted to just not touch anywhere near it. And Paul, or Saul, his name's Saul. I'm going to interchangeably Paul and Saul later. He's changed his name to Paul. So it's the same person. If you see me interchangeably use that name, that's why. But Saul was a Pharisee of Pharisees. This is who he was. And when he heard there was a movement following this Jesus starting up that was... Causing and telling people <clears throat> that they need to put their faith in Jesus and that that's where trust and salvation would come from. He wanted to squash that movement. And so he was going all around trying to find these Jesus followers and just put a stop to this movement. And one of the places he was going to go to was the city of Damascus. And here's what happened on the road to Damascus. Acts chapter 9, picking up in verse 3. It says, now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, 
he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. A disciple is a follower of Jesus in this case. There was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen a vision of a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And Saul of Tarsus gets knocked off his high horse and has an experience with Jesus, like a real experience with Jesus, like Jesus shows up and reveals himself to Saul. He sees him, talks to him, and he's changed. But here's the interesting thing. That was a starting line and not a finish line. Now many of us would think if Jesus showed up, like not just I feel Jesus, I know Jesus, like Jesus literally showed up in front of us and talk to us. We would be changed and the work would be done and that's a finish line and now let's just go do what God told us to do but that's not what happened. Jesus showed up. Saul started believing but then he said, now Saul, you need to have Ananias come into your life. You had an encounter with Jesus and now you need to encounter followers of Jesus. You need to have someone who's a follower of Jesus come into your life and come beside you and pray for you. And I love the expression there that says, Saul opened his eyes and saw nothing. It's like he's been touched, but it's not finished. He opened his eyes, but he had not, he he was not ready to go and do everything God had called him to do yet. He needed Ananias to come. And Ananias, you know, hears about Saul and you know his reaction. Think about the person in your life who is most antagonistic to following Jesus. Think about who that is. And maybe there's a family member or a friend who every time you tell them you go to church or every time you try and say, I'll be praying for you or every time you mention Jesus, they just laugh at you. They say, why do you bother? They make fun of you. What's your problem? Why do you go there? What do you need that for? Why do you believe that? Think about that person that is the most antagonistic, the most unbelieving person you know about following Jesus. And think about if that person came to say, I'm one of you now. I follow Jesus. Because that's what God's telling Ananias. That the greatest persecutor of the church... I want you to go pray for him. Or take it on a larger scale because Paul or Saul was a well-known person and persecutor of Jesus. So think about the largest national scale person. Who's that? 
Think about if Richard Dawkins or Neil deGrasse Tyson or Ricky Gervais suddenly said, I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm one of you. We'd probably be a bit skeptical and so was Ananias. But Ananias said go. God said go. Pray for him because I have work for him to do and he needs you to start that work. And Ananias, he goes and he prays for Saul and Saul receives his sight and he baptizes him. But that's not the finish line for Paul. What happens is he starts to do what he always did. He goes to the synagogues and preaches. This time, though, he preaches about Jesus. But people at the synagogues don't want to hear about that. They don't only get angry and persecute him. They threaten to kill him. So Saul's like, I got to get out of Damascus. So he leaves Damascus. Where's he going to go? Well, it all started in Jerusalem. So he's going to go to Jerusalem and go see the church and the disciples that meet there. So that's what he does. And in Acts chapter 9, a little bit later, beginning in verse 26, it says this, And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him. For they did not believe that he was a disciple. Say these next two words with me. But Barnabas... Now, some of you didn't know how to pronounce that name, so now you know. So say it again with me. Ready? But Barnabas. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in among them at Jerusalem and preached boldly in the name of the Lord. Paul had come to Jesus, but he still needed Ananias, and now he needs Barnabas. And God brings Barnabas into his life. And Barnabas does something that he, uh, if you look at the original language it's written in, the implication is he vouched for. He says, I've gone, I've gotten to know this guy Saul, and he's for real. And guys, he is one, he's a follower of Jesus, and I vouch for him. Barnabas leveraged the influence and the power that he had for the sake of one who was just coming along in the faith. And I ask you, who in your life do you have that would vouch for you? Because we all need people in our life like that. We all need people in our life who are a little further along in following Jesus that'll take us to the next step, that'll leverage what they have and what they've learned to take us to the next place we need to go in the Lord. Barnabas goes, gets to know Saul, and he vouches for him. Then here's what happens. Saul begins to preach in Jerusalem. And guess what happens? He gets threatened and persecuted, and they want to kill him. And so he has to leave Jerusalem. And so they say, Saul, go back to Tarsus. That's where you're from. Go to Tarsus. And here's the thing. Saul goes to Tarsus and he's there for several years and we have no idea what he was doing. There's no account. These are margin years in the scripture. We're not told what was going on in Saul's life. This is below the waterline work in Saul's life. He had had an encounter with Jesus. He had been preaching Jesus. He had had all this mighty change happen, and yet it wasn't time. He he needed more work to be done below the waterline. 
So for years he went to Tarsus and was there. And I'm sure he was preaching and I'm sure he was ministering, but I'm also sure he was being grown in how to preach and how to minister and how to, and what God wants to do in his life. And there will be silent years in your life and my life that will be unremarkable steps that God is calling you to take where God is growing you. And then he's there in Tarsus. Well, then what happens? Here's what happened. The disciples are in Jerusalem. And they start to hear rumbles of something going on in another city. The city's called Antioch. And the disciples in Jerusalem start to hear that it's like a Billy Graham crusade. Obviously, they don't know Billy Graham, but that's what's going on, right? It, it, it's like all of a sudden there's people, I don't know how many people, but enough to make a, a, a noise and a difference are starting to come to Jesus. And there's this revival and there's this church is starting to grow. And the disciples in Jerusalem say, we got to go find out about this. Guess who they send? They send Barnabas. Barnabas, go down to Antioch. Find out if this is legit. Find out what's going on there. And here's what, he, here's what happens. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem of what was going on in Antioch. And they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. Here's the next verse. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Here's why I bring all that up. Because Saul had crossed a starting line on the road to Damascus. But he wasn't done. God had more preparation work to do. He had Barnabas come. And Barnabas went to Antioch. And then Barnabas went to get Saul. Because here's what Barnabas knew. Something had been poured into Barnabas. And now Barnabas had to pour it into someone else. Barnabas knew that what God had given him now had to be given to someone else. And that someone else was Saul. And Saul had a wonderful experience, but he needed something else. And what that something else was, he needed a Christian who was further along to come beside him and to walk with him and say, this is how it goes, Saul. Come and minister with me for a whole year. Let's do this together for a whole year. Let's build this church together. I know you saw Jesus. I know God has a plan for your life. I know you're preaching. I know you've got zeal. That's wonderful. I know you've got, you know, clout. We're going to use that. But what you need is someone to pour into you and show you the way of following Jesus. And my question for you this morning is, who's pouring into you? Who's pouring into you this morning? Man of God, woman of God, who is pouring into who's a little further along in their walk in some part and you have given them permission you have invited them you have asked them you have told them you need it I need it who is pouring into your life because I don't care from the how old you are or how long you've been walking with Jesus you have not arrived yet 
And there is someone who can teach you something. I know I need it in my life. I've got people in my life who I had to seek out and I had to give permission. You need to speak into my life. You need to tell me. You need to help me think and pray and about things. You need to help me know how to walk with Jesus better. I need to know this. I need to know what you know. Who's pouring into your life? But then, of course, there's a second question. You probably anticipated it already. Who are you pouring into? Who are you pouring into? Because the truth is, this start line that you have crossed is one that says, I need to have someone pour into me, but now I also need to pour into someone else. That's what you're called to do. You have to pour out. See, Jesus gave one clear command right before he ascended back into heaven. He said, and Jesus came right before he ascended back into heaven and said to his disciples, said to them, his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All power, all authority, everything. So what's he going to say? Whatever he's going to say next is really important. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. When we look at that verse, can you put that back up for a second? When we look at that verse, we often think the emphasis is on the go. And the go is important. It's not unimportant. But if you look at the Greek of this verse, the go is not an imperative, it's a participle. The make is actually the imperative verb in this sentence. So we look at this verse and we think it says, go and make disciples of all nations. But it doesn't. It says, go and make disciples of all nations. In other words, this is your job. And here's, here's the truth of the Christian faith that we sometimes get wrong. You are not called to be a disciple. You are called to make disciples. You are not called simply to be a disciple. You are called to make disciples. And the truth is that you really aren't a disciple unless you are working on making disciples. Because that's what a disciple is. A follower of Jesus is someone who follows Jesus, and Jesus said, go make disciples. You're going to follow Jesus, and I'm going to follow Jesus. I've got to be making, I've got to be pouring myself, I've got to be showing someone the way. I've got to be pouring myself out into somebody. Saul, who eventually became Paul, planted churches, wrote most of our New Testament God used him to do that. He learned this lesson because later on in ministry, he was writing a letter to a man that he had mentored. His name is Timothy. And when he's writing to Timothy, he says these words to him. What you had heard from me, from who? From Paul. What you have heard from me, Timothy. What you, Timothy, have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses. Entrust that to faithful men. So it went from Paul, it went to Timothy, now it's going to faithful men, who will be able to teach others also. So let it go from Paul to Timothy to faithful men, now to others. And if he could go on, I'm sure he would, because then it would go to others and others. But trust it to faithful people who will pass it on, because this is what it is to be a follower of Jesus. It's to have someone take and pour into your life everything that they know and fill you with what they have so that you then 
can take what has been poured into you and start to pour it into others. And that's what you're called to and that's what I'm called to. This life of discipleship is simply pouring out into others what has been poured into you. And so you have not, you don't come and sit in a church on Sunday morning just so you can leave with a good feeling and say, oh, me and Jesus are good. And then let me go home and go about the rest of my life. You have come here on a Sunday morning and God has allowed you to be here and your word, God's word is put within you so that you can then take what has been put in you, put your cup and fill someone else's cup. Pour it out. Because the truth is, if you don't have anyone pouring into you, you're going to have nothing to give out. But if you only have people pouring to, into you, it's never going, it's going to stop with you. It's going to be stop with you and that's not the way the Christian faith is meant to be. And you say, well, I don't have much. Yeah, maybe. Maybe you just started following Jesus. You can tell someone else about starting to follow Jesus. All you're called to is give out what's been given to you. I love what Pastor Andy Stanley says about this. He says, uh, he says you're not called to fill everyone's cup. You're just called to empty your cup. You don't have to, someone's going to come to you and they're going to need more than you can give them. You give them what you can give them. You just empty your cup. You just, they come and, and you want to tell them about Jesus and you say, well, that's all I know about that. Well, that's all you know? Yep. That's all I know. But you know what will happen is God will bring someone else along. And they're going to come and God will bring someone else into their life and they will have something that you didn't have. And they'll start pouring into their life. And this is the life of following Jesus. Take what has been poured into you and pour it into someone else. And who is pouring into you? And who are you pouring into? So we're going into the fall. We're starting what is many... You know, for us, a new ministry year. That's why we're talking about serving and get involved in ministry. And one of the things I'd like you to consider is who's pouring into you? And who has God put in your life to pour into? Because I think God has put someone in your life who needs something from you. Because we all, I think we all know that we need someone to pour into us. I don't know, maybe you don't, but I know it. And if we all know that, then why are we so hesitant to approach someone? Because they need it too and say, look, I need you. I need, would you sit down and have a cup of coffee with me each week? Or I'm serving with you in ministry. Can we chat once a week on the phone and pray together? Start, you're a little further along than me. Or maybe you know someone. I'm walking through this and I know you've walked through that. Would you help me? Who's pouring into you and who are you pouring into? I'm going to ask our music team to come back and we're going to close out of service. But just before they do, I want to share with you a little bit of what this looks like in life and what this looks like in our church. You know, sometimes people ask me, well, what's your discipleship plan in the church? And I think, well, you know, I can think, well, I can name off classes we have. We have wonderful things. You can go to precepts on Monday nights and that's a fantastic place to grow and you can go to some of our prayer meetings and you can go to base camp classes and you can, there's, there's, you can be in a community group. 
But I'll be honest. And I wonder if you will be too, if you've been following Jesus very long. If I ask you how you grow in Christ, that stuff plays a role. But some of the largest role of how you're going to grow in Christ was because somebody took an interest in you and spoke Jesus into your life and walked with you and talked with you about what it is to follow Jesus. And will you do that for someone else? A couple weeks ago, I got an email from Steve. And Steve um, asked me, was asking me about if I knew anything about Pastor Harvey Meppelink. Harvey Meppelink was the founding pastor of this church. And uh, Steve emailed me and said, you know, do you know anything? And I said to Steve, I said, well, I emailed him back and I said, um, you know, I think he's living with his daughter out in Western Mass and I don't know a lot, but I'll reach out to her and find out and see if I can find out and get back to you. But before I got back to Steve, I couldn't finish my email without saying to him, but Steve, you need to know something. That you want to contact Harvey Meppelink because you want to thank him for what he poured into you. But I need to tell you that what you poured into me made a huge difference in my life. Because Steve was my youth leader when I was a teenager. And that wasn't his job. He was a, I think he was an engineer. I don't, I don't remember even what he did for a job, but he didn't work for the church. He was just someone who, who poured out what was poured into him. And so he'd work all week, Monday through Friday, and then fi- Friday nights, he would get together with a half dozen teenagers uh, and, and come and listen to us and, and, and try and talk to us about Jesus and take us on mystery van rides and, and, and play volleyball with us and, and sometimes listen to Keith Green and tell us about what, uh, what it is to follow Jesus. And he'd take three of us to his home, townhouse in Chelmsford. And he would uh, sit down and he'd say, I want you guys to be youth leaders. And uh, we'd say, wow, you want us to be youth leaders? That's three of us, right? The group's like eight. So we're the lead, right? But Steve didn't care. What he cared about is he was calling something out of us. He sat down and opened up the book, the Bible, and opened up Timothy. And we read through it together. And we talked through it together. I don't, I don't remember all that he said. But I remember him taking an interest in me. And I remember him just sharing his life with me and talking to me about Jesus. And there's so many people throughout the years that have done that for me. But that's what it looks like. And sometimes it just looks like other people that will sit down and take time and spend with you. It looks like teachers in Sunday morning classrooms, on Wednesday nights, JBQ leaders, people in this room this morning who have had an influence on my life and on my ministry who God has blessed me with some of them in a formal way because they've been you were actually teachers of mine when I was in class or you served on boards with me some of them in an informal way because I sat in a prayer meeting with you and listened to you pray in faith for something God was doing in your life Pour out what's been poured into you. I didn't plan this message on this Sunday where we were handing out this card intentionally. This isn't a 35-minute commercial for you to serve. 
In fact, we actually preached this message in Belmont a couple weeks ago and it fell, happened on this Sunday that we preached it here. But I'll tell you what, it's a good place to start. If you're not serving someplace, that list on the back, that's a good place to start. If you need a formal place, fill out that and then put it in a ba- put it out in the basket on the table in the hallway. Where are you pouring yourself out? Because when you serve on one of these teams, my hope and my prayer is that you'll pour into each other. I've spoken to our leaders in our church and when I speak to them, you know, I say, who's on your team? Who are you pouring into? And we've reorganized our entire leadership structure. Then I, when I sit down with our, our leaders, I, one of my questions is, how many people are you leading? And if it's more than five, it's too many. Because you can't pour into more than five people. Jesus had 12, you can maybe do five. Probably three. But I'm hoping for five. But who are you pouring into? And when you serve on that team, I hope that you're getting poured into, but I also hope that you are looking for other people to pour into others. It's why next month you'll hear about something we're starting called the Marriage Mentoring Ministry. And over the summer, we've been training couples on marriage mentoring so that we can, they can walk beside other couples in the church who need mentors in their marriage. Because they have all the answers? Nope. Because they're willing to empty their cup. Say, so here's what I've learned about following Jesus. Learn, love, live. We come and gather on Sunday mornings to learn about God, but then we grow in our love for Him and for others, and we go and live a life of faith, pouring ourselves out to others. The learn needs to lead to loving and the loving to living. And so I pray that that's happening for you in your life. So as we close, they're going to play this song. And as they do, what I want you to do is take out your connect card. Because I want you to, I don't, I don't want you to just walk away and say, oh, that was a nice message. I want you to take out that connect card and a pen. So not the, not the serving card. Fill that out. Maybe you already did. But the connect card, the other one, the one I don't have with me. Um, and on the back of that, there's a sermon notes part. Here's what I want you to do while they're playing and while we're worshiping in just these last couple minutes together. I want you to write down some names. I want you to write down some names. Three columns. Three columns. Here's your three columns. The first column is, who do you need to thank God for that has poured into you over the years? Just write down the names. For me, I write down Steve, Harvey Meppling, Dennis Levitt, Armin Houston. I write down people who have poured into me over the Ray Richards, Phyllis D'Agostino, people who have poured into me over the years. What are those names? First column, God, thank you, God, for these people and these names. Second column, who's pouring into you right now? And the third column, who has God put in your life that you can pour into? And if you are a young person in here, do not leave that third column blank just because you are a young person. God has someone in your life If you're a high schooler, go teach middle schoolers. If you're a middle schooler, go teach elementary school kids. Pour into someone in your life because start that practice now that you will carry throughout the rest of your life. Lord, lead us even now as we close out this service by remembering, by saying thank you, and by leading us. I pray that you will bring names to our minds. 
thank you for those who have led us for those who are continuing to pour into us and to those who we will pour into lead us now in Jesus name Amen